One of the very first Christmases that Jamie and I were married, we were uh, we were Poe. We didn't even have the money to afford the R on the end of poor, and uh, so I decided, hey, here's a cool way. Let's just do let's just do stockings for Christmas, right? Great way to save money uh, if you're like 23 and don't have a lot of it. And so we decided to do stockings, although you can. Put some pretty expensive stuff in a stocking. That was not the goal. So we we're just going to exchange stockings Christmas morning. And so I remember uh, maybe a few months back, Jamie said, hey, I, I really like some, some whisk. And I was like, okay, like I filed that away. My little like new husband heart. And I'm like, if my wife wants some whisk, I don't know why she wants some whisk. I've never really seen her use whisk. We have whisk. But if she wants some whisk, dadgummit, I'm going to get some whisk. And so, like, I would search all around. I was going to all the Bed Bath Beyond, all these things. Like, I wasn't doing Walmart whisk. Like, I'm going Williams-Sonoma, okay? And I don't know how much technology you can put into a whisk. I mean, it's just pretty simple, basic. But it's like, is it ergonomic? Is it filled with, like, unicorn tears and mermaid hair? I don't know. But, like, I did all my research, spent all this time, and I bought the most amazing whisk for my new bride. And so, I mean, it was like three sizes, whatever bowl, you know, it felt so good in your hands. Like this was the best I could do with what I was given. And so Christmas morning came. This is all we're doing, right? You dump the stocking, Christmas is over, okay? So she, she dumps the stocking and she goes, oh, thanks, babe. I'm like, thanks, babe. Like, I thought she was gonna jump up for joy. I've always wanted these, you know? This is so amazing. Well, come to find out, she never really even used them. And so I'm like, what is happening? You know, I'm just trying to be a you know, calm husband, but, but this is what she wanted, and she never even touched them, never even used them. So finally, like, February rolled around, and I've had it. I've had enough, and I'm like, what the heck, you know? Like, I spent all this time, I got these amazing whisks. They are top-of-the-line whisks, you know, if that's a thing. And she, and she starts just, I said, that's, that's what you wanted. You told me that. You asked for that. She dies laughing. She kind of like falls on the floor. And after five minutes, you know, I finally get her to tell me. She goes, babe, I never said I wanted whisk. I said I wanted wisp. <laughs> she wanted little portable toothbrushes, right? <laughs> that have toothpaste in them. So that's what she wanted, but I misheard. I misunderstood. There was a communication breakdown, and so I, I got, we still have these just amazing whisks. You can come over. We'll try them, right? Um, <laughs> but that's what it was. And so maybe you, you've had that before. You've had a, a miscommunication, a, a misunderstanding. And when it comes to Christmas presents, it's funny. No big deal. We can laugh at it. I went back and got the whisk for her, so she actually got what she wanted in February, right? But, but when there's a miscommunication, when there's a misunderstanding in regards to spirituality, it's not so funny. When we misunderstand, misapply some of the scripture, we may not get laughs, but it may wreak havoc on someone's spiritual life. I've seen this happen in my own life. A young girl who's very close, near and dear to me and Jamie, when she was 13 years old, her brother was driving to school one day, had a brain aneurysm and wrecked on the, on the damn road right there going across a uh, Lake Grapevine. And he wound up being in the hospital trying to save his life. And so for this 13-year-old girl, a, a spiritual authority, a godly, mature Christian comes to her and they give her this verse and apply it to that situation. But when Jesus heard it said, this illness will not lead to death. 
And so the scripture was taken, it was handed to this 13-year-old girl and said, this is true of your brother. Three months later, the brother dies. What do you think that does to a 13-year-old's faith? Huh? When a spiritual authority, a godly mature leader, takes something and misapplies it and misunderstands it, and she's praying that and holding on to it, and then it doesn't happen. You think that it's spiritual malpractice, if not spiritual abuse. She had to work through that so long in her life. So when it comes to scripture, we cannot afford to misunderstand, to miscommunicate, and to misapply. As we approach the final chapter in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, he launches some of these phrases. They're some of the most well-known phrases in Christendom that we take, we stitch on pillows and put on coffee cups. But so many times, they can be misapplied, misunderstood. Phrases like, rejoice always, don't be anxious, I can do all things, and God will supply all of your needs. I think when an outside world looks at those, they go, are they out of touch with reality? I mean, is the Bible even take into account the real, you can do all things, rejoice always, all your needs? What about those people dying in other countries because they don't have their needs met? Right, or maybe someone holds on to these and they're taught that and they're misunderstood and they have missed expectations. So when it doesn't line up and life cuts across what they think is supposed to happen, their faith crumbles or they'll just walk on it. So we cannot afford to misunderstand and misapply these verses that Paul writes about. Chapter four of Philippians, it opens up and he actually calls out two women who were incredible women, great leaders pushing the gospel forward, but they've got a little friction with one another. And so he's saying, hey, all these things I've written to you about considering others better than yourself, right? Like work through that fine piece with one another. Then we jump into verse four, which is one of the most misunderstood verses. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say, rejoice. The girl I just told you about, this past Tuesday, I stood next to her at a funeral for another one of her brothers. She's 27. She's lost two brothers. This one, he was on a bicycle in Austin. The car hit him and killed him. You know what no one said at the funeral? No one quoted this verse. No one busted out in song, all right, everybody, we're lowering him in the ground, rejoicing the Lord always and again. Nobody does that. Like going through job loss, when your child is running away in open-handed rebellion, when a, when a spouse serves you divorce papers, nobody goes, rejoicing the Lord. Why not? It says always. Does he really mean always? Or is he lying? Was he misunderstood? Well, I mean, rejoice most of the time, but there's occasionally... He actually does mean always. But the key to understanding this teaching is the phrase, in the Lord. He's saying, find your joy in Jesus regardless of your circumstances. 
Absolutely. He's not saying don't have joy in other things. Yes, have joy in your career. Have joy in your family. Have joy in your hobbies. But those can be taken away in an instant. You want something you can always find joy in? That is Jesus and Jesus alone. Find joy in Jesus in the midst of, in spite of some of the heartache and pain that happens in our world. He'll go on to say, and again, I will say, what that translates to is, I will say it over and over and over again. I will never stop saying, rejoice in the Lord, is what he means by that. Now, why is he so adamant about, I'm going to continue to say, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord? Because two things are going to happen. Number one, one day you're going to get a phone call or something's going to happen and it's going to be hard and you're going to be broken and you're going to be crushed. And in that day, you need to remember that joy is found in Jesus, not in the bad, but in the midst of the bad, you got to hold on to that. Second reason he says, I'm going to keep saying it is because you and I will be tempted when times are good to find joy in the good and not in Jesus. He goes, no, 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 even in the good, even in the plenty, even everything's going really well, I need you not to find joy and contentment in that, but come back and find it in Jesus. Your spiritual maturity can be measured by what it takes to steal your joy. So where do you find your joy? I mean, is it really in Christ alone that we rejoice? Or are we kind of putting things and elevating things above that, right? When we put our joy in the Lord, it cannot be taken away. It cannot be broken. And again, it's not a fake joy that we're just pretending like, like heartache and bad things don't happen, but say, hey, in the midst of this, I'm not alone. I have hope. Jesus knows and he cares and he's walking with me and he's there. And because of that, I can have joy in Jesus even in the midst of hard trials. The second misunderstanding comes in verse six. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds, Christ Jesus. The word there for anxious is marinao, and it's kind of a compound word of marizo and nos. So marizo, a literal translation is to rip or to tear, and nos is mine. Anxious thoughts, it's like a ripping, a tearing of your mind. Some of you can relate to that, right? And we live in a culture of anxious thoughts, a culture of rising anxiety. A statistic is this, that 40 million Americans suffer from some form of anxiety. It's like 18% of all adults. Americans always end up on one of the most anxious country lists, if you're looking at those. In the last three decades, we've seen anxiety disorders jump 1,200% in America. And they would say today, the average high school student has the same anxious thoughts and anxiety as a psychiatric patient in the 1950s. What's the world's solution to this? Don't worry, be happy. Happiness is a word derived from happenstance, like luck or chance. 
That that's the way we're gonna approach anxious thoughts? Is if you're just lucky enough, if you just chance into it, you don't have to worry? Or maybe they go like, here's how you do with anxious thoughts, right? You just, just manage it. You just deal with it. There's nothing you can do, right? You just gotta kinda learn to cope with it. The Bible has a very different approach to this ripping and tearing of our mind. The Bible has a very different approach to anxious thoughts. It says, do not be anxious. Now, let me be very clear. There's a spectrum of anxiety. What the Bible is addressing here are anxious thoughts. It is not addressing anxiety. It's not addressing clinical or anything like that. Like you are a whole person, spiritual, physical, mental, emotional, Right, And so we're not a church that just says, pray the anxiety away, okay? You go get all the help you need as a whole person. What the Bible's doing here is these anxious thoughts it's addressing. And in that, it says, don't be anxious. Not one thing give you anxious thoughts. Now, what's interesting about this word, marinao, is in chapter two, Paul also uses it. When he's commending Timothy, in chapter two, he said, hey, be like Jesus. Jesus humbled himself. He serves others. He goes, you want to see an example of Christ-like humility? It's Timothy. He said, Timothy cares for the church in Philippi. The word care, marinao. Timothy is anxious for the church in Philippi. So in chapter two, he uses this word and says, great. That's, that's commendable. That is Christ-like. That is good and honoring. Now in chapter four, he's saying, don't be anxious at all about anything. So which one is it? Is it okay? Is it not okay? What we know is this, is that there's a line, that there is a time and a place. It is appropriate to have some anxious thoughts. It's normal. You ought to care about yourself. You ought to care about others. That's what he's saying in chapter two. But here in chapter four, he says, there comes a point when your normal, natural, healthy care for yourself and others, it crosses over the line and it no longer trusts in God. That's what he's saying don't do. And this other one, yes, Timothy cared, anxious for the church in Philippi, but the whole time, he was trusting in God's sovereign care over it. And so this is what he's talking about here. Do not be anxious. So how do we battle these anxious thoughts? Paul tells us, in everything, by prayer, by supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So you battle anxious thoughts through prayer. What kind of prayer? Request, petition, supplication, asking God. But there's a caveat. It should come with an attitude with thanksgiving. That's the attitude of the supplication, of the petitions. We see this in the Lord's Prayer. But the Lord's Prayer isn't, give me this day my daily bread. The Lord's Prayer is, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, give us this day of daily bread. After I've worshiped, after I've thanked, then I can make my requests. So doing this, and then he says the peace of God, that, that's, that's trust in God, that's that contentment in God, it kind of pulls us back from not trusting in him. This will surpass all 
understanding. It's a phrase that means it's not natural. It's not normal. There's something supernaturally happening in those who pray this. Surpasses all understanding. And it will guard your heart and mind. Imagine a guard like at a castle. That's what I was talking about, like a guard, like a defense system, sword, shield. And it's guarding your heart and mind from anxious thoughts that don't trust God. It's kind of batting those away and keeping those out. And it says this happens in Christ Jesus. This peace is not for everyone. This, a peace that surpasses all understanding, that guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, is only for believers. The world is left with, don't worry, be happy. Just deal with it and cope. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, there's something better, there's something more, there's another way to combat anxious thoughts. Now, for some of you, you may go, okay, I I get that, I understand that, but I've had some anxious thoughts, and sometimes they tend toward not trusting God, and I'll pray about it, and I'm still not trusting God. Well, Well, here's the deal. The peace that surpasses all understanding is not a passive peace. Like, you don't just pray for it, and God gives it to you. You have an active role to play. It's like this. It's like if you were to pray, God, I just I want to know you. I want to know your word. I want to know scripture. God's not going to go, oh, thanks for the prayer. Bzz, now you got all the knowledge. You know what he's going to say? Thanks for the prayer. Here's a Bible. Open it and read it. There's a request, a supplication, but then there's an action you take. And the same is true with the peace that surpasses all understanding. Absolutely. Pray for it with thanksgiving, but then there's something you have to do. Verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard of me, practice these things. And then the God of peace will be with you. We don't just pray and God just zaps us with peace. He says, thank you for that supplication. Now go dwell on, meditate on, focus on things that are lovely and pure and commendable and praiseworthy and excellent. And if you're still sitting in that place where you're like, I've prayed, why has it not gone away? The question I would ask you is, What are you putting into your mind, in your heart, in your eyes, in your ears? What what takes your mental energy? What are you focusing on? What are you meditating on? What are you dwelling on? Is it pure? Is it commendable, honorable, praiseworthy, excellent, true, lovely? If it's not, well, guess what? There's a reason you're not able to have the peace that surpasses all understanding. Absolutely, God is working, but you are an active participant in this part as well. Third misunderstanding starts in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things 
through him who strengthens me. Can you really? Can you breathe underwater? Can you jump up and touch the moon? Can you blink three times, turn around, turn yourself into a tiger? Can you do that? Can you just become a pro football player? Like, like what happens to people when they set out to accomplish something and we staple this Bible verse on it and it doesn't happen? You cannot do all things. This is not a little verse that says, yeah, absolutely, just believe it and go make it happen and you can do it all. That's not at all what he's talking about. You have to see it in the context. So what does he mean? Listen to this. He says, I've been brought low. I've learned how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. Do you remember the guy who's writing these words? Like, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, smart as a whip, intellectual, top of his class, rising star, and he's persecuting the church, members of the way. Like, literally, he shows up on the scene, first thing he's doing is, is holding coats for people so that they can get a good range of motion to stone Stephen to death. And then he's, like, he's leaving and traveling to go find believers, followers of the way, to drag them out of their homes and imprison them. And Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus and changes his life. From then on, but it's highs and lows for him. He gives a sermon and people come to faith. He goes in, he's able to, he's able to cast out demons. He's actually been able to blind people. He's that kind of power. There's even a town he walks in, people touch his handkerchief and they get healed. Is that not a high? He goes into Ephesus, he changes the entire economic system with the gospel. People, there were metallurgists who were, who were building idols, but he goes in, he shares the gospel, puts them out of business. Like they can't, even, no one wants the idols anymore because now they're following Christ. So he's experienced high, seen conversion, lived in luxury. But at the same time, like when he was in Lystra, they started stoning him, stoned him so much, his lifeless body lay in the city and they just drug him outside the walls and left him for dead. Miraculously, he revives, gets up, goes back into the city. You know what happened where he shut down the uh, idol economy? 40 men pledged never to eat or drink until they killed him. Talk about highs, talk about lows. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians about himself. He says, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I'm beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in dangers from rivers and bandits and fellow Jews. Dangers from Gentiles and in the city and in the country and at sea and from false believers. I've labored, I've toiled, I've often gone without sleep, I've known hunger and thirst, and I've gone without food. I've been cold, I've been naked, and besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for the churches. But God has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. This is why. For Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, insults, hardship, 
persecution difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the guy who's writing, I can do all things through Christ. He doesn't mean come up with your dream. What he's saying is not I can do all things, but I can endure all things for the sake of the gospel. This dude's in prison. He's been beaten and whipped. He's not saying come up with your fairy tale and just go live that out for Jesus. He's saying, I can endure. I can persevere. I can be steadfast in the midst of anything. That's what he means. That's what he's trying to get out. So many times we take this verse and we, we think it uh, deals with great things. I can do good things. I can be that CEO for Jesus. I can whatever. That's not what he has in mind. He's saying when you can do all things, when you can endure all things, he's thinking about the hard, the lowly, the difficult, the humiliating service that following Christ takes. That's what he's talking about. And he says in any situation, right, good or bad, he's very clear about that kind of back and forth. I mean, he says this, I've learned, by the way, this is learned, it's not natural, It took him some time as well. We're gonna mess up along the way, but he learned the secret of facing plenty. I read that and kind of laugh. That should be really difficult, right? Facing plenty. I don't know how I'm gonna do it, you know? So much abundance. But listen to me, successful, wealthy flower mound. It may be harder to abound and have plenty than it is to be brought low. Why? Because in abundance, it's harder to resist self-glorification, self-exaltation, self-preoccupation when things are good and wealth and plenty and abundance. So he says, even in that, there's a secret to being content, not finding your joy in those things. So what do you do? He says, I can do all things through him. The secret is contentment in Christ, not contentment in your abundance and in your plenty. Not not despairing in your lowly state or hurting or hardship, but contentment in Christ. The word contentment in the text is literally translated self-rule. Like like self-discipline, like rule myself, rule my emotions. I I don't need to put them in this. But what's in that interesting, like, like self-rule, it seems very anti-biblical, right? But he says, I can do through Christ. My sufficiency is in his sufficiency. And we see this all the time through scripture, right? Just what he's talking about there in prayer, right? Like pray about it and then God does it, but you dwell on it. We even see the fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit, one of them is what? Self-control, Even in Philippians 2, it says, you work out your own salvation as he works in you. There is a partnership that's meant to be together between you and Christ to accomplish these things. So high or low, abundance or nothing, we have to find contentment in Christ. You know you're truly content when the world has lost its power to addict you to its pleasures. As Ron reminded us last week in Philippians 3, whatever I've gained, I count it as loss for the sake 
of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Fourth and final misunderstanding. Let's start in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my troubles. And you, Philippians, yourselves, you know that at the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving, receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of glory in Christ Jesus. What does he mean by every need? Is it food, clothing, shelter? Is it your life, your liberty, your pursuit of happiness? Are those the needs he has in mind as he's writing God will supply every need? I think when we go to another letter he wrote to the Romans, we see what he's talking about, what needs he's addressing. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those in whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. When is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? For as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels, demons, present or future, any powers, height or depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What needs does he have in mind? He's telling them right there, you will experience famine. You will experience nakedness. You will experience death. So I don't think he's talking about food, clothing, and shelter when he says God will supply all your needs. Paul's not promising them physical and financial need. He's promising them, promising them that Christ is more precious than any physical or financial need. He's raising the bar. My friend, you never merely need human resources. As much as you want and long for and need family and friends, you know what you need more? Forgiveness of your soul. As much as we want satisfaction in this life, you know what you need more? Salvation. As much as we want this, that, or the other, you know what we need more? A deep, abiding, walk, and intimate relationship with Jesus. Those are the needs he's absolutely promising will be met, that there is salvation and forgiveness and eternal life in Christ Jesus. In the face of opposition and in all circumstances, Paul does not ignore the realities of physical discomfort, but his main concern 
is to help the Philippians find their true contentment in the peace and the power of God. I've seen this passage recently lived out in one of the most beautiful ways. There's a family that's very close to to Jamie and I. Our families have uh, been intertwined for over 10 years. It's the Glass family, David, Christina, and Caitlin, and Gibson, and uh, we served together in student ministry for so many years. I'm even getting to do a part of Caitlin's premarital mentoring. There's seasons of our life that have gone by that either Christina or Caitlin have been in our house every single week. So our lives are just intertwined, have been for 10 years. It's a couple months ago that Christina started having back pain. And probably just a couple weeks ago, she went to the doctor and she was diagnosed with stage four cancer. As they start to make this public, as they start to share this journey, they, they, they put a post on Facebook. And when I read it, it floored me. I, I don't know how you write this. I don't know how you truly think this, but, but listen to what she says. I'm excited that God chose me to go through this just so something amazing can be done through it. I just want to be a vessel. We're expectant. We believe he is a God of miracles yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Are they rejoicing always in the cancer? No. It's horrible and it's awful. But you know what they're doing in the midst of cancer? They're finding joy in Jesus. Do you think they've got a little anxious thoughts? Absolutely they do. It would be crazy not to. But you know what? They're trusting God in those anxious thoughts. Yes, they have worry. Yes, they have care. Yes, they have concern. But it's not getting to the point of not trusting God. You think she's dwelling on bad things? Or you think to write that? She's dwelling on lovely, pure, excellent, praiseworthy things. Absolutely she is. Do you think she can do all things in Christ? She can just stand up out of the bed and cure herself of cancer and walk out of the hospital? No, but she can endure. She can persevere through this in Jesus' name for his glory. Do you think she's, she's praying for God to meet some physical and financial needs? Absolutely. But in the midst of it all, she sees her greatest need is of a savior and the forgiveness of her sins and for God's glory to be accomplished through this. I don't know if I could write that. Maybe I have a misunderstanding and a misapplication of Philippians 4, but praise God she didn't. That in the midst of it all, she understood the scriptures well enough to go through this. My friend, people have said that the the book of Philippians is all about Joy, 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 joy. How to have joy. And yes, joy is a theme. But that's not the point. Absolutely it's not the point. The point of Philippians is for you to be in relationship with Christ. The book of Philippians is all about Jesus. That's how Paul opens the book. I'm a bondservant of Christ Jesus. My imprisonment is for Christ. To live is for Christ. Have this mindset that is yours in Christ. Rejoice in Christ. Make your request to Christ. Christ will meet your needs. It's all about Jesus. And when you pursue Jesus and meditate and focus,
focus and dwell on him and abide in him and walk with him. All these other things. Like Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Paul's words. God, thank you that we, we don't want to misunderstand them. We don't want to misapply them. We're not out of touch with reality. But God, in doing so, we see there's a depth and a realness and a richness to walking through life. So Jesus, we, more than we need joy, we need you. More than we need abundance, we need you. In the midst of any situation and circumstance, help us focus and dwell on you, God. Lord, if there is anyone here who's been trying to do life without you, trying to get rid of anxious thoughts without you, trying to find joy and purpose without you, God, I pray that Paul's letter would show him that's, that's impossible. But that you love and you graciously receive any one of us who would come and put our faith and trust in you, God. So may we respond to you from the words of this book. It's in your name we pray, amen.